if y'all are just joining and I've given my spiel so those people in Zoom can hear it again, but you online didn't hear it. So um, I am uh, working. We've got about 50 or 60 people on Zoom in the background uh, that are participating with me on the meeting. So if you hear some other people asking questions when it comes to Q&A, then they will be, that's them. And uh, I'm streaming this live out to y'all on Facebook and YouTube and my website. So I'm grateful that y'all are joining us. If I look around, I'm doing a lot of clicking and buttons. I try to stay focused as best I can, but this is live, this is raw, and I don't have a fancy studio producer. So um, tonight we are going to be talking about something that I'm calling the origins of human violence. Now, I assert it in my title, but this is a hypothesis, okay? And I want to build the case for the origins of human violence, okay? It's a pretty good-sized claim to say this is the origin of human violence. Um, it may not be the entirety of it. I'll hedge myself a little bit. But I do think that tonight, as we work through it, this foundational story in the beginning of the Torah, in the book of Genesis, uh, Bereshit in Hebrew, talks about this remarkable story. It is an ancient story. It's 3,500 years old or 3,000 some years old, maybe. But it does an incredible job of articulating and laying out how culture acts and reacts to violence and where it all comes from. So I want to make the case for that tonight. And the story is, of course, from the title, Cain and Abel. So we'll be looking a little bit at that. Um, and I may, usually I teach this in like a second or third part of a series on Genesis, but I thought I would just do this message so we may chronologically jump back into Genesis and talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and some of all that stuff. But tonight we're going to be focused on the origins of human violence, Cain, Abel, and the decimation of standards. And I will articulate all of that and what that means tonight. So if you guys would pray with me and then we'll jump into the text. I wish I had Alma with me to lead worship, actually. That was so fun last night. Pray with me now. Living God, we thank you that you love us, that you know us, that you are with us. Father, thank you that you gave us a path to life to redeem, restore all the broken pieces of the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you are alive. You're not a concept, God, but you are present with us. So we just invite and yield to you, Spirit of God. We ask that you would do what Jesus said you would do in the Gospels, that you would reveal the truth, that you would remind us of all the things that you've said, and you'd show us what's coming and how to move in a world that desperately needs you. We love you, Daddy. We bless you in your holy name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so, so tonight... We are talking about the origins of human violence, um, and we'll be talking at the end, we'll get to this graphic, the phrase silence is violence, and that phrase, you may have heard it, it's been a, uh, a popular phrase, I suppose, in a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests that have gone out throughout the, the country over the last couple of years. Um, I saw that phrase in Huntsville, Alabama uh, last fall at a Starbucks. It's sort of the height of COVID. And it was on a Starbucks with the banners up there on Starbucks. And it said, Black Lives Matter. And then on the side, it said, silence is violence. And when I saw that, um, it, it triggered a number of thoughts in my mind and kind of began me down this road of thinking about violence and culture and what that actually means. So I'm going to talk with you all tonight about that. 
Our primary text, if you have Bibles and want to read through it, uh, is Genesis chapter 4. I will be showing you everything here on the screen as well. If you don't have Bibles, it will be in front of you. But from time to time, it's nice to have a Bible, an actual Bible that, you know, if China ever detonates an EMP above New York City, I'll still be able to read the Word of God. Um, so anyway, so tonight, origins of human violence. So let's just jump in here to the text. I want to, I want to, well, let's pick up the story here of Cain and Abel because the Cain and Abel story, um, I'm just making sure my audio is right. So the Cain and Abel story is on the back end of the creation narrative and the story of Adam and Eve. And there's so much involved, of course, in the story of Adam and Eve and the revelation of how God creates the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he inhabits the creation, the sacred space that he made. And humanity's first experience with God is rest. It's Shabbat. It's the seventh day. And there's a whole teaching inside of that. But the Genesis story in the scriptures is what I consider to be a temple narrative. It's six days of creating the sacred space. And on the seventh day, it's the filling of the sacred space. And that seven day sacred space creation and filling of God, that storyline repeats itself with temples and tabernacles throughout the scriptures. So when we pick up the story with Cain and Abel, it has somewhat of a dubious distinction of really being the first story of a truly human experience. And what do I mean from that? Well, Adam and Eve, of course, were humans. They weren't chimpanzees or Martians or some other sort of, you know, carbon-based life form. But they were created by God, right? They birthed from a woman. They weren't children birthed from a woman. They were created by God. and. So Adam and Eve have a unique position as the first people, as the story of the first people. But Cain and Abel are the first people in the scriptures that are birthed from man and woman, from the union of two flesh made one, and birthed into humanity. And I think that it's very interesting that the story of the first truly human, born of woman, uh, people in the scriptures is what it is. So let's jump into that. If you have your scriptures, turn to Genesis chapter 4. Um, sort of the way I do these studies is I read some scriptures, and then I talk through, do word studies, do some interpretive work, give you some more information, and continue on throughout the scriptures. So read with me now, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And I'm reading out of the ESV version of the scriptures. So Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Okay, so the word new here is a very important word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word yada. And to know something in yada sense, it's about an intimate encounter. Okay, we know Adam knew his wife. Like biblical knowing, we know what that kind of knowing is, right? That's the intimate encounter, not a cognitive knowledge. Like you can't think, you know, you can't think about a woman and get her pregnant. You have to know her, right? Um, 
Although Jesus has some words to say about what a man thinks in his mind about, about a woman, um, what the consequences of that can be, talks about adultery in Matthew. But the point here is that knowledge of this kind is not cognitive, right? It's not a mental ascent. It's not something that we grab onto and hold in our minds. It's an experience. It's an encounter. And all throughout scriptures, it's great to do a word study on this. If you see the word knowledge or new in Hebrew, go to Blue Letter Bible and look and see whether that is the Hebrew word da'af, which means perceptual skill and ability, or if it's the word yada. Because having knowledge, skill, and ability in the mind to do work is different than an experience and an encounter with God. So, and I unpacked a lot. I unpack a lot of that when we go through the first couple chapters of Genesis with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not the tree of the yada of good and evil. It's the tree of the da'af. It's a tree that gives our minds capability, rational thought process. It's not an encounter with God. Okay, I'll save that teaching for another time or we won't finish. Okay, so Adam knew his wife Eve, right? He didn't just think about her. He had an intimate encounter with her and they bore their son Cain. And Cain, that word Cain is kind of like a play on words, you know, of acquired or gotten for myself. The word Cain is very closely related to gotten. I have acquired, gotten a man with a help from the Lord. And then she has Abel. So a couple of things that we need to know about Cain and Abel are apparent in this. Number one, Cain's the firstborn. It's obvious, but it's an important detail. And Abel is the secondborn. But they talk about these two brothers, about what it is that they do. Okay, so this is important. So what they do isn't just like the job, like they work at, you know, Taco Bell or FedEx or they're, you know, a homemaker. What people are doing here, this is more of a vocation kind of articulation. Okay, it's not just what job they have. This is about their vocation as people in the earth. So we need to look at what they are. The scriptures say that Abel was a keeper of sheep. Okay, that word sheep is a word here that it just means flock or portion, or sometimes it can be meant in the sense of inheritance. So Abel, as the second born, was tending to God's flocks. Okay, so this was the command to um, tend to the animals that was given to Adam and Eve, and then they inherited some of that vocation to tend to the animals, specifically the animals. Okay. Now, Cain, the scriptures say, was a worker of the ground, okay? And Cain is the firstborn. So here's a couple of scriptures about what the worker of the ground is and what that specific phrase means. Also from Genesis, I could show you a lot more, but Genesis gives us a good indication. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, the Lord says, There was no bush in the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Okay? Another one a little bit later, because there was no man, Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden, the gone of Eden, to work it and to keep it. So both of those phrases use the Hebrew word in Genesis 4 that Cain was a worker of the ground. Okay, so... 
what this really lays out for us is that Cain was a firstborn and he was operating in humanity's divine mandate to husband God's creation. Okay, husband, that word work the ground means to caretake, to tend, or it's sort of an old school way to talk about gardening. It's husbandry. It's maintaining. It's tending to, caring for, pruning, bringing forth life. It's the vocation of bringing forth and tending to the inheritance and the humanity's divine mandate to care for the things that God has made and entrusted to us to tend to. Okay, make sense? So it's not just like Cain was a farmer and Abel was a sheep herder and God liked the sheep better than the fruit, right? There's something much deeper going on here as it relates. We'll get into that part of the story. But Cain was the firstborn operating in humanity's divine mandate to husband God's creation. Abel, as the secondborn, didn't have the same measure of inheritance, okay? We see this all throughout scriptures, The firstborn has a different portion, a different allotment, a different inheritance for the Hebrew speakers. So hold that. That That's what was going on there. So let's go into Genesis 3 and continue on while I drink something. It's a green bottle, so it's screening on us. All right. Genesis 4, 3 through 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought forth, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay. We'll come back to this, but well, I'm going to change that colors. He brought the firstborn here of his flock. Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Abel brought to the Lord the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. There's a difference between the firstborn, the first portion. The scriptures call that the first fruits and something that you grew or a piece of your offering, right? Difference between the first fruit and just an offering. Let's continue. Genesis 4, 6, and 7. The Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other translations, it says, but you must master it. Okay, so we're going to camp on this here for a little bit about what is going on in these seven verses. Right. Very small, condensed wisdom in this. So now that we understand the vocation of Cain and Abel, it's not just their jobs. Let's take a look at what this little bit in peace articulates and reveals about um, who these guys were. And I'm just calling this sort of Cain and Abel spirits. Um, I'm not saying that it's like an actual spirit, like an angel or a demon or something. Um, There's not like a Cain demon, I don't think. I don't know. I don't know a lot of demons personally. Um, But 
This is more of like, what's the animating life, the principle, or what's, you know, like that guy's got a lot of spirit, a lot of spunk. So what is the animating sense about Abel? Well, the scriptures say that Abel gave the best, the first fruits of his portion to God. And so Abel is a picture of somebody who stewards the portion that you've been allotted with devotion to God, your provider. That's what this image of the first first fruits and the best and the portion that you would give the best, the first portion of your inheritance back to God. Now, this is a long principle, um, a long articulated, greatly articulated principle throughout the scriptures. Don't worry, I'm not about to preach on tithing and take an offering. But there, that, that's part of what it is. All throughout scripture, God calls his people to give back to him the first fruits. There's two different festivals of first fruits. We're in the middle of the first and second. Actually, there's three. I think there's three. Um, there's two in the spring. We'll go with that. In the, in, in the festivals of the Lord, there's the first fruits of barley, which happens during Passover at Pesach. And that's when Jesus was crucified, buried, and then resurrected as the first fruit of barley. And then we're coming up here in the middle of May, and I think it's about two weeks from now, we're coming up on the first fruits of wheat. And this is the first fruit of the wheat harvest. And this is the first fruits. We know it as Pentecost, the Greek word for 50. Um, the Hebrew word is Shavuot, and that means Feast of Weeks um, or the Festival of the Ingathering. So the, the Shavuot is the first fruits of wheat. Pesach happens with the first fruits of barley, and those are two different uh, things and two really big different concepts throughout the scripture. Um, but the first fruits is about taking from the harvest the bounty that God gives to you, gleaning the best of the portion, and as an honoring sacrifice to God, giving back to him the first fruits, the best of what you've been given because it honors who God is. We'll talk more about sacrifice here in a minute. So this is the spirit of Abel. This is what animates the second born son. Okay. Now Cain's spirit is a little bit different. He's got a different sense to him, a little different attitude about the world. So part of this is that Cain doesn't do the same thing. The scriptures say that the scriptures don't say that he gave the first fruits. Now, he may have given the first fruits. We don't know. But I'm inclined to think that because the scriptures explicitly say that Abel gave the first fruits and Cain did not, we can make a decent assumption that Cain did not give the first fruits. And part of that is the advocating, the surrendering, the giving up of his divine mandate to husband God's creation. Why? Well, he had a sense of entitlement. The best was for me. Okay? And I don't know about y'all, but I see, and I experience like some senses, my own self of entitlement. Like, why would I give the best to somebody else? Uh, I have three kids, three young kids, not nine through 12. And I watch this happen all the time. Who gets the best? you know, of whatever portion they're given for dinner or the, the best bowl of ice cream. Who gets the best? There's always a fight about who gets the best, you know, and mom and dad get very good at making sure everything is exactly equal. So there is no best because nobody says, 
Oh, that looks like it's the biggest, best. It has the best magic shell on it. You can have that one, sister. That's not what happens, right? There's a sense of entitlement. We want the best. Of course we want the best, right? But Cain, as the firstborn, had a different kind of mandate from him, from God, right? There's a different weight and responsibility biblically as a firstborn son to care for the larger portion, the larger inheritance, to, to take the mantle of who God says you are and to live that out in your life. And all throughout the text, this could be a whole other study as well, there's a recurring theme about the firstborn and the secondborn sons being at odds with one another, and it's almost always the secondborn son that lives into the inheritance of his father, where the firstborn son advocates that responsibility. Okay? This is the first time we begin to see that story, and it's going to make sense in a minute. Another great story of that is Jacob and Esau. Y'all know that story? Even in the way that we know the story, we know about Jacob and Esau, but Jacob was not the firstborn. Esau was. No, it's really Esau and Jacob. Cain and Abel is firstborn, secondborn. So Jacob and Esau have a similar kind of a deal, is that Esau is the older brother. The scriptures say he was a hunter. He was a mighty man, which is the same word they use for the guy Nimrod, who was a warlord. So basically, Esau was this warlord and he was not living into the mandate as the firstborn son to tend to his father Abraham's inheritance. But Jacob was. And so we see this fight between Jacob and Esau, and it's a first and second born, firstborn moving in this sort of Cain spirit of entitlement, keeping the best for themselves and advocating the responsibility that was given to them by God. And the second born picks it up. Ultimately, in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 6, the Lord finally says to Israel, they, he, says, he says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. Well, Israel was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel after he wrestles with God. And the rabbis make a really big deal out of this. This is the moment when God validates the secondborn through faith and obedience to God as the place of the firstborn. Does that make sense? Well, why is that important? Okay, just laid out some archaic Jewish traditions. What does that matter? Okay, well, what we're doing right now is we're trying to mine the scriptures in the mindset of the people that wrote it and the history and the culture to understand why firstborn and secondborn act a particular way. What are the expectations biblically and culturally on their lives for what they're not doing? Okay, we learn a lot from the scriptures about what's not being done. So I'm setting this stage up and I'm going to put it together and we're going to start talking some about culture and what does this all mean, okay? So the scriptures say that Cain, his offering isn't um, accepted by God and we'll get into that. But the Lord comes to him and talks to Cain specifically about his desire. He talks to him about the, the sin lusting and crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. Okay, so let's talk about desire and sin with these Cain and Abel spirits. And the first thing that the scriptures talk about is the desire 
uh, that that sin is having. Let me see if I can bring this slide back up because I would like to look at I'd like to look at that slide. Um, where is it? I think it's this one. Yeah, this one. The Lord says to Cain, "Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin." is crouching at its door, at your door, its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. So sin and desire, God pairs those together. Okay, so let's look at sin and desire. I don't know about y'all, but I, I interpret so much of the sin in the world, and I'll define sin for us in a moment, biblically. Um, it has to do with unruly desire. It has to do with the things that just sort of rise up inside of us. Probably most of y'all don't have philosophy degrees in Eastern religion, and you're not permanently plagued with over-meditating on things that you could probably just ignore. Um, but I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why the heck do I want what I want? And more importantly, often, why? how can I get myself to stop wanting the things that I want? Because the things that I want, I don't want to want what I want. Because uh, those things aren't helpful or healthy sometimes. This is this is Paul's conundrum. You know, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. Well, unruly desire is an important thing to look at. And in the scripture here, it says that his desire, sin's desire, the evil one that's crouching, its desire is for you. That word desire is a very strong Hebrew word, and it means it means lustful, ravenish, instinctual, instinctual desires. It's not a mm, I could have that. I could you know I, I don't know. I have some desire for that. It's it's better translated as as our word in common colloquial English as desire or lust. Okay, and there is a category of desires that what I call instinctual desires. And these are, these are desires that we see on display. Again, I'm a dad with young kids, and I see these sorts of, not lustful desires, but instinctual desires, things that just flare up. You know, have, have, if you've ever raised kids or been in the supermarket, if you've been single your whole life or no children, um, you've probably seen a child throw a tantrum, right? They want something, this is the origin of the children's tantrum, um, and it's not just bad parenting. You know, <laughs> I mean, you can you can bad parent a tantrum, that's for sure. But um, the tantrums happen in children because they have a strong desire, and it's like an instinctual desire, like I'm sleepy, or I'm hungry, or I want what you have and you're not giving it to me, and so this instinctual desire just takes over their bodies. And there is a very real neurological and physiological reality that starts to happen in a child. And that desire literally just consumes their mind. And I watched a lot of TLC a decade or so ago. And there was this, uh, this show called um, The Dog Whisperer, Caesar Milan. Uh, I really liked him. But he had this trick with dogs that were locked into this instinctual desire. He would like take his foot and like kind of tap them lightly in the back um, behind his body to break him out of it because they were caught, he said, in this instinctual desire loop. He didn't say that, but 
they're caught in this focus and you need to break the focus, get them out of that desire loop, refocus them in on what he was trying to train them to do. And this is what happens with kids. You know, they want something, they can't get it, their body and their minds take over. Then you begin to feed into that tantrum. Parents throw their own tantrums trying to get their kids to stop. They don't understand that it's an instinctual desire and that their tantrum doesn't make the kids tantrum any better. And now we're off to the tantrum races and you're embarrassed to leave the house. Uh, but as kids get older, they learn how to regulate that desire, right? And if you saw a 15-year-old throwing an 18-month-old temper tantrum, it wouldn't have the same kind of like, oh, look at the little kid. Like there'd be a real problem at that point. Why? Well, as we grow up and mature, the task of maturity is learning how to regulate desire, to regulate instinctual desires, and also to work on trying to choose what desires you focus on, how you focus on them, and what do you do when you have a desire. Like this is a whole process that um, you can undertake. Uh, and we go through it naturally without thinking about it, but oftentimes it takes some steady contemplation uh, if you have unregulated desire. So unruly desire is a significant issue. And developmentally, kids have to go through that. But I've seen a lot of stuff I've, I've, I've been out of college for a little while now, and I haven't been back on a college campus in a little while. And I've got great love for college students. I'd love to engage in that younger generation of thoughtful dialogue. But I don't see a lot of that actually happening at universities. I see a lot of tantrums being thrown at universities. You know, if anyone's watched like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or Michael Knowles or any of these conservative um, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, they go out on campus um, and speak to people. And while they're talking, the students, some of them are coming to the mic to ask good questions, but many of them are throwing temper tantrums in the audience. And they stand up and they yell and they shout and they disrupt. They throw ad hominem attacks. They don't engage with the ideas. They've been trained by whatever culture is training them to throw a temper tantrum. Right? And why are they doing this? Well, I think there's a reality when you don't learn to meld your desire to something higher than your base instincts. Okay? If you don't have a vision or a structure to give you order in your life or in your heart or spirit that's higher than your own base instincts, i.e. God, morality that's based on the word of God, a culture that gives us a structure of law and order based on the scriptures. If you reject that, you reject God, you've got no internal guiding principle to deal with your stuff. And so you can't control your internal world. And that is a very unhappy, unpleasant, painful place to be. Okay? When I was a kid, I struggled with depression like 20 years. I was one of the first generation Prozac kids and was on Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil. I'm very familiar with what it's like to have emotions and desires and feelings, lowered feelings, that I can't control. Right? And it's a very uncomfortable, unpleasant, painful experience. But... The reality is, is that 
If you cannot order your internal world, you have to learn how to control your external world. So if you can't control your emotions, you have to learn to control other people's behavior. Why is that? Well, you don't have an internal ordering system. You're a slave to your instinctual desires or a very real chemical imbalance that causes a variety of emotional spikes and valleys and peaks. There's a real chemical physiological element to this. But if you can't order your internal world, you have to control the people outside of you that are causing you to feel all of these negative things. Right? I think this is a big part of what's in operation in cancel culture today. Some of it's just meanness, you know, and malicious assault. Let's just say that. But I think another big part of it is that a ton of young people are being led into an ideology, into a belief where, where the world is absent God, where culture, structure, education, individual self-identification and responsibility, when you throw that stuff off, it doesn't shift and change your internal world. You still have all these desires. Only now you're told Sure, you can drink this and be with this person and you can know anybody you want to know. Um, that just stirs up tons of desire. But you can't meet all those desires. So you have to start controlling everybody else around you so that they don't send you into a triggered snowflake rage. Okay. And those are sort of triggering words. Uh, maybe I shouldn't said that. Uh, sort of gives you my bent. Um <laughs> I'm not ashamed of that. It's not everybody. But there is a huge portion of this triggered snowflake rage that comes from the reality that these people are being taught not to order their own instinctual desires. They are being mastered by them. And that is a painful experience. So they have to begin to order and demand acquiescence and behavior in their external world. Y'all see this? So this is part of what's going on with Cain, okay? He has an unruly desire that God is telling him, watch out now. Sin is crouching at the door and it has lustful, its lustful, unruly desire is contrary to the things I'm calling you to. Cain, pay attention. Get your desires in check. Your call as a firstborn son as an archetype of humanity, is to realize you must learn to master the desire that seeks to consume you. Okay? This is what God is telling Cain. And he calls it, and it, he equates it with sin. Sin is lying down, crouching. That Hebrew word lying down or crouching, it does have some sort of sexual undertones about spread out in front of you. The scriptures are full of sexual undertones when it talks about God, primarily because sexuality is the number one thing that reveals the trinity of God. It's the divine math of two made one, the three in one unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Adultery is the number one metaphor for leaving God and apostasy in the scriptures. These things are all connected. So he connects that, this sort of lustful desire with sin. And sin, you guys may know this, sin is a Hebrew word that's an archery term that means to miss the mark, right? You are missing what you were shooting for. Now, 
this statement begs the question, well, if sin is missing the mark, then that assumes that we're aiming at something, right? If you miss a mark, it's because you're aiming at something. If you just randomly, you know, shoot your AR-15 out at the ducks that are flying past you and you're not aiming at anything, you're not missing anything if you aim for nothing. You aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time because, right, you're aiming at nothing. So, missing the mark, sin means missing the mark, and this implies that we need to have an aim, right? Let's talk about the aim. Aim is absolutely critical, just even without the spiritual, biblical truth that's underneath this. It's a human reality that we must have an aim if we want to find meaning in the world. If you're not headed in any direction, then you're going nowhere and your life really begins to decay and fall apart. And there's a reality in our minds and in our spirits that what we aim at determines what we see. Okay, so my throat's getting dry. Hold on. What we aim at determines what we see. So a couple levels of analysis on this. Um, every day, many of you all have smartphones, you know, because you love it that the NSA can just track you and listen into your conversations. So you spend thousands of dollars so that you can be constantly wiretapped by the government. Um, I'm one of those people, although I'm starting to break my addiction. The more I learn, the more I realize, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. But, um, so why was I talking about phones? Missing the mark. Got it. Um, so every day you've got your cell phone and you've got a 3G or a 4G or a 5G band inside of your phone. And every single day, that phone, invisible to you, is capturing all kinds of data that's coming in from the world around you. And it's to you're totally oblivious to it. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Although you may be getting cancer in your brain from it. I don't know. Uh, but you don't know that it's out there. But your phone is capturing that information that's totally invisible to you, and it's translating that into something that you can access. Now, there's a physical reality to that component, even with the eyes, you know, that scientists say that, that I forget the percentage of it, it's like high percentage, like 80, 90 percent of the brain's processing power and energy comes from processing what you're seeing. The eyes take in tremendous amounts of information. So they say that if you just close your eyes for a couple of minutes, you can literally reset your brain by shutting down all of the streams of information that's coming into your face, into your brain. Now, why is that important? Well, your mind is not capturing the same measure, your, your rational cognitive mind is not capturing the same amount of information that your brain is. Like, let's say a million pieces of information come in and you only understand 10% of that or 1% of that. Does that make sense? So we know more than we understand. What does that mean? Well, it's just a reality of the way our bodies are wired, and there's a spiritual principle here, that there is way more information that you're gathering that you instinctively discard and pay no attention to 
until the point that you set your focus to it. Okay. And I love like the spy thrillers. Uh, I read this guy. It's sort of, well, I'm not going to tell you who it is because I'm a little embarrassed. Dang it. Said that out loud. Um, I read a lot of philosophy and religion and politics. And then some days I just play golf and listen to spy thrillers Um, because I need my brain to shut off. But I love the spy thrillers like Jason Bourne. Those Bourne movies were awesome um, from this perspective because I love the spy that sits in the in the coffee shop and everybody else is, you know, touristy. They're drinking their coffee and they're oblivious to everything that's going around. But the Jason Bourne, when he sits down, he's scanning the room and he's gathering all of the information. He's processing the information. He's working out a plan to act on the information. And I love that, you know. And that exposes a reality is that most of the time we're totally oblivious to everything that goes on around us. It's actually going on. We just don't pay attention to it. Okay. And if you ever played the game, I'm giving so many examples. Maybe I'm just proud of my examples. Last one. Ever played the game Slugbug? As a kid growing up, we played Slugbug all the time. You know, if you see a VW bug, you have to hit your brother. And that was the point of the game. Um, But you can't imagine how many slug bugs are on the road till you start looking for slug bugs. It's like, is there like a factory just on the border of Mexico that just pumps these things into America? There's a ton of them. So what we set our eyes on determines what we see. I didn't create 52 slug bugs between here and Abilene, Texas by looking at them. I didn't manifest them in a factory with my eyes, but I discovered them because I was focused on them and I never would have seen them had I not been looking for them. Okay. This is what sin deals in. Okay. When there's a mark, when there's goal directed behavior, this implies, sin implies there's a mark. And when you have a goal in mind, it's the behavior that guides, it's the goal that guides the behavior that charts a course to the end. And the term end can mean a lot of different things. But scripturally, the end is eternal life. The end is a relationship with Jesus, not the end of our chronology and our life, the goal, right? The end is the goal. Okay. So sin means to miss the mark, and it also means that there is a mark, and that when we set our eyes on the things that God is calling us to, we begin to literally see a whole new world of possibilities that existed while before, but we just never saw them. This is what the transformational encounter with God is all about, one of the things it's all about is that before you met Jesus and the power of the Spirit animated this, this Bible calls it the old dead self or the old life, before the power of God resurrects us or breathes new life into us, then all of a sudden, like, we see things in a totally different way. Why? Well, part of that's the Holy Spirit giving us new information. Part of that is that we have our eyes focused on something else. So when God tells Cain that... Sin has a lustful desire and it's ready to take him over 
and that lustful desire is contrary to him or contrary to things God made him. He's saying sin is a problem in your life because it sets your focus on things that are contrary to the things of God. And when your eye is guided by the lustful desires, the unregulated desires, then you will not see the things that God has for you. And when you see what God has, then you get to be with him. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When your heart is pure, your eye is guided and directed towards the eternal one. You get to see what he's doing and a whole new world opens up for you. So this is what sin is about. Lastly, it charts the course to the end. What's the end? Well, Romans 3.23 says it really great. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oftentimes in Protestant denominations that I'm familiar with, we major on all have sinned. But we forget we fall short of the falling short of the glory. The glory that you're made for is the end. We were made to reflect, to emanate, to image out into the world the glory and the beauty of the infinite one. That's what we've been made for. And why is sin such a problem? Well, we fall short of living in the glory that God's called us to. It's not that sin keeps us from the Baptist church. You know, maybe it does. I don't know. Um, a few of them all went to. That's not the point. The point of sin is that it keeps us held back from the glory that God has called us and given us an opportunity. And so he's telling Cain, watch out. Okay? There is a goal-guided behavior that you're being led off into sin. It's desire is for you. It's contrary to the things of God, but you must master it. I feel like I'm belaboring this point, but it's an important point because I want you to see what's, what's underneath this fatherly instruction that God in these two or three sentences is giving to Cain. And that's the beauty of the story is just this beautiful, unfathomably complex thing condensed into a couple of sentences. God is calling Cain to become more than he is. And he's pointing out to him something that stands in its way. Unregulated desire that hasn't been submitted. The mark is being missed. Cain can be more than he is already. And God is saying, I'm calling you to more. I'm calling you to mastery of your unregulated desire by keeping your mark on the glory of God. Okay? This is what's going on with Cain. Is this good? I think this is good. I like teaching online, but I miss, like, the human interaction. I can see my Zoom friends over here. Um, thank you, but I have to look over here. Sherry, thank you. Big thumbs up. I used to think thumbs up were so nerdy, and then Trump was president. And I'm like, yeah, thumbs up. So now I think it's cool again. I'm so driven by culture. <laughs> All right. So the question then here is, if sin is a problem, which it is, and sin is missing the mark, and the mark is the glory of God, and God is calling us, Cain in particular here, I'll get to us, Cain in particular here, he's saying you need to get mastery over this. And if God calls you to something, 
do you think it's possible for you to achieve it? You know, I don't know. We can have a big question about that in the New Testament and sin and the holy life and like that whole deal. Um, but God isn't just saying you can have mastery over this. Try it. It'll be fruitless. And then I'll laugh at you. Like, I think that God really thinks that Cain can get mastery over this. Now, ultimately, we know the end of the story for believers in Jesus, that the only way to get mastery over sin is through the sacrifice of Jesus, the, the atoning sacrifice that he gives us a whole new set. He gives us a whole new life, right? And we're able to accomplish the things that God's called us to through Jesus. But God wasn't pretending. He was serious to get mastery over this. Well, the first system that, oh man, there's, this is deep, y'all. So this is deep. Y'all can hang with me. I'm fighting the urge to qualify, but we're just going to go for it. So one of the first, well, the first biblical system that gets put in place for gaining mastery over sin is something that Jesus comes and fulfills and then ultimately exposes and does away with. And that is called the sacrificial system. Okay? But in the beginning, God establishes sacrifice for the purpose of teaching his kids to gain mastery over sin. Notice in this Cain and Abel story that this whole thing happens because they brought a sacrifice to God. One was accepted. One was not. The one who was not accepted was angry. He had unregulated desire. God confronts him in a fatherly way to lead him into something he's not. And Cain gets a major choice. We'll talk about the choice in just a second. Sacrifice. We need to cover sacrifice. Now, the sacrificial system in, in, in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all of the deep pictures and the highs and the lows of the sacrificial system. It's a big topic. Okay, but the origin of sacrifice is here, much like violence. And you'll see these things are connected here in a few minutes. Sacrifice is an exercise in mastering your desire. Okay. And um, if you guys want the notes, I'll, I'll text them out. If you're texting with me, I'll text these out to you at the end of this. And I'll also put them on my website, adamshindler.com, right there. So you can take notes, but I'll give you this PDF. So how is sacrifice an exercise in mastering desire? Okay, so let's think about what sacrifice is. You know, And without doing a whole big lecture on sacrifice, and the Genesis 15, and the cutting of covenant, and the giving. The basic idea of sacrifice is that you give up something valuable, ideally what's most valuable right now, for a promised future gain. Okay? You give up something now that you care about, that you value, for something that's better in the future. It's like you're bargaining with God or bargaining with your future self. How many of y'all like working? You know, you can put it in the chat and I'll see it in 45 seconds. You like to work. Yay. Any of my Zoom friends like to work? <sighs> Maybe. I don't know. It's because you probably don't have a great job. Not like a job that doesn't make you good money or something, but 
work is something that oftentimes feels like a sacrifice. Unless you're like living right in the middle that you get to work as a vocation in the center of your calling as a person, right? That's the kind of rewarding stuff that you can listen to all these self-help people to, to teach you how to get there. I haven't yet really found that. I'm pretty close to that doing this kind of stuff online. Um, but work is a great example of sacrifice. You know, you trade your 8, 10, 15, please, sweet Jesus, not 16, 17 hours a day. You trade in your time for what? Your 401k, right? Your retirement plan. So you're sacrificing the moment for a desired end. And you're believing in your bargain with the stock market that in the future, you'll get a return that's greater than the moment. So it's better, so it goes, to invest $40,000 in the market than to buy a new BMW, right? You're giving up what you would like now for the hope of a future gain. That's, the, that's sort of the basics of sacrifice. Now, there's a whole lot more scripturally in there. There's a spiritual component to that that I'm not going to get into. But we do want to see that sacrifice is giving up now something that's most valuable to you for a future gain. Why is this important? Just from a human perspective, sacrifice is important. It trains us in character. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Scriptures say, I think it's in Hebrews. Do you think that was a sacrifice for Jesus? Like he was literally a sacrifice. Okay? And he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his pressing, his betrayal. He's not loving this, y'all, but he's giving up what was most valuable to him right now, which was his life for something that was even better, for a future gain. What's that? Eternal life for everyone. So sacrifice, if we're not Jesus, which none of us are, it does something else. It trains us in delayed gratification. Again, yeah, Nancy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame because he saw the goodness, the glory, the purposes of God. He gave up what was valuable now in order that the world would know. Well, as a dad of three young kids, I've said that a lot tonight. I've just had, I've, I've just had four days with little tiny baby twins in my house. So I'm thinking a lot more about poop again. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, no filter. But when your parents are infants, you think a lot about that. Um, but I just had dinner with them, and I watched, I watched them struggle with delayed gratification. Like, they were sleepy. And when they're sleepy, they're crying, and they're pounding the table, and it's really cute. Um, but I'm not their parent, so I don't have to deal with it. I think it's cute. But sacrifice is a training in delayed gratification. And this is an absolutely essential tool, absolutely essential skill to learn when you're young. We've got to learn how to delay these impulses that come to us. Food is a great, I mean, you can learn a lot about your spiritual connection to God by thinking about food. The first time I started um, doing a Daniel fast, we used to do that at the beginning of the year. And the first day, literally, we started it that morning. I had my coffee. Then we went on the Daniel fast. The next morning I woke up and before I even got out of my bedroom into the kitchen, I was grumpy because I didn't get coffee. And I was just, I was grumpy and I was like cursing under my breath, you know, Christian curse terms, like, you know, whatever. Uh, but I was upset. 
And I was complaining to God about this stupid little thing. And then I heard so clearly the Lord say, Adam, I'm going to teach you how to eat, to take care of your body, not satisfy your desires. I was like, oh, I saw Jelena's face. She's like, oh, that one hits. <laughs> right? Because food is something that's immediate gratification. It's 1045 at night and it's time for some microwave popcorn because I got a salty craving with some M&Ms. Right? It's an immediate gratification. And that's not all bad, you know? I mean, it's good to have desires met, right? But when we never learn to delay gratification, we never learn to sacrifice the bag of popcorn for the swimsuit we want to wear. That's such a trivial example. Um, but we make these sorts of negotiations and sacrifices all throughout our lives. That's the fundamental working of the sacrificial system. Now, sacrificial in the temple is that times infinite, right? But training and delayed gratification is critical. This is what sacrifice, this is what sacrifice trained us in. And it also then forces us to honor the reality of the community self. What's the community self? Um, well, work is another great example, right? You're the you that you are right now, right? Here I am. You know, everywhere I go, there I am. Um, I'm the me that exists in the present. But if you're trying to get a job, your current expression is that you don't have a job. You're the you that doesn't have a job. What really, really, really helps the you that doesn't have a job? Well, the experience of the you that used to have a job in these areas, right? So there's the past you. There's the history of the work and the experience and the things that you've done, right? So there's the you in the past, and then I'm going to go back here. There's the you in the present, and then there's the you in the future. And sacrifice forces us to pay attention to these three different kinds of selves. Yes, we're not Sybil. We're not like three different broken out personalities, but we all live in this kind of world where we exist now. We have a past and we all have a dream or a vision for the future. If you don't, then you're a nihilist and you're on the verge of self-destruction. Okay. Sacrifice forces us to honor this reality because we have to think about what's happened before, where we are now and where we want to go. And this keeps the goal or the aim ever before us. Okay. So it's forcing us to deal with who we are in this community of self, and that sets the goal in front of us. And since we know what sin is now, sin is missing the mark, how would it help us if we had a constant aim throughout our lives? Do you think that would help us hit the mark more often? To recognize when we miss the mark because we had a constant aim. Well, if sacrifice teaches us to give up something valuable now for the future. We honor the past, the present, and the future reality, and it sets that focus in front of us. Goal-directed sacrificial behavior really helps people get their lives together, just on a psychological, cultural level. Now, this is what's underpinning a bunch of this scripture that God is attending to Cain. Because Cain offered a sacrifice, and it wasn't accepted, 
and God gives him some instructions. Okay, let's go back here to the Genesis 4 story uh, in verse 8, and we'll start talking about violence. Okay, and then I'm going to tie this into culture. Yeah, I'm reading some comments on Facebook, some good ones. Genesis chapter 4, 8 through 10. So Cain spoke to his to Abel, his brother. So God gave him this instruction, gave him an opportunity, gave him a chance to do something, to become more than he was already. And this is what happens. Verse 8, Genesis 4. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Which is like a really, you know, tart thing to say back to the Lord. Um, Verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. All right, we got to look at this now. Because God is calling Cain to something that he's not. He's calling him to be more than he is. He's calling him to mastery of his desires that are unregulated. He's calling him out. That his sacrifice wasn't hitting the mark and there was more. And here is Cain's response. Murder, right? But he had two choices at this point, okay? These are the two choices. Cain could have submitted to God's standard, right? He could have said, he could have heeded the call to become more than he is and grow into the promise that God had for him. That's why God pursued him. Why is your face downcast, Cain? Watch out. Sin's lustful, lustfully coming after you. You've missed the mark, but you can get mastery over this. Become more than you are, Cain. Grow. Develop. Learn something new. Master that skill that's required to be connected to God, of delaying your gratification, connecting your heart to him, not just doing whatever the heck you feel like, submitting your heart and your reality to the care and the good will of God. Don't be a secular humanist thinking that man is the measure of all things. In God's compassion and grace, he's giving us a way and giving Cain a way to become more than he is on his own. But right now he's on his own. So that was the first choice. Cain obviously didn't take that choice. This is the this next one is his choice. And this is the devastating critique of Cain and Abel and our culture. And we're going to talk about this now. What was his choice? Door number two. Cain murdered the earthly representation that holds us, uh, that holds up, holds us to God's eternal standard. Right? God said, this is my standard, grow. Cain said, I don't want to grow. This guy's the problem. It's not the standard. It's this guy. He's the representation of God's standard. And so he murders the standard that was manifested in the earth that represented the growth spiritually to become more inside of who God has called him. It's a lot of words. So the origin of human violence is the refusal to grow spiritually. We're going to camp here and end here. 
The origin of human violence is a refusal to grow spiritually. When God comes and says there's more, if you reject the more, you can't get away from the reality of God's image-bearing nature that lives inside of you. And I don't care how much gender normalization and terms you throw out there. I don't care what your socioeconomic status is or what you believe government ought to be doing. It doesn't matter whether you deny it or not. The reality of God's image-bearing nature is implanted in every one of us. And we can never outrun our Creator. And if God is calling you to more and you reject God and you think God is a is a white male patriarchy and he's dominated the culture and all of his followers have committed mass murder and genocide through all of the years and you hate God. I under I I mean I understand that perspective. You know, it's not the correct one, but I understand how you get there in culture. But you can't outrun the reality is that God has made us for more. And we can become more than we already are if we will attend to the darkness in our own soul and have God show us the way to life. There's a, there's a neurological reality that what when I talk about this, like I'm not just trying to use big words. Um, Sylvia, all right, I'll do that for you. Um, she asked me to put the last point up. Um, there's a neurological reality that our brains don't become what they could be until we take steps out into learning new things. At the ends, neurologically, at the ends of all of the neurons in your brain, these are the there's things called dendrites. And dendrites are thousands and tens of thousands of little tentacles at the edge of the neurons. Neurons carry the electrical charges and it's the information pathways in the brain. Dendrites are all these little connectors at the end of them that connect up with other sections of the brain and other systems. And that's the extent of my neurological biology that I know. Um, so they're things that touch each other. Uh, but dendrites, um, neurobiologists have demonstrated that literally can be created, thousands of them can be created over, literally overnight. And those things get created when we try and make new neurological pathways where we've never had them. And that most often happens when we try a new motor skill. Like when you learn to throw a baseball, I'm teaching my son to throw a baseball right now, and he got way better in the last week. Why? Well, he played it a couple of times at school, but a big part of that is that his motor skills are increasing because his brain is growing new electrical pathways that's allowing him to remember the motion of throwing a ball. Multiply that. Another way that we grow dendrites is by encountering new ideas, things that we didn't know before. You know, and many of us have what's called a fixed mindset, which means we don't we're not open to new ideas. We don't want to hear the other person's side of the story. Doesn't matter what your wife is saying. You know, it's true and she can just deal with it. Um, it's not my wife, not me. Uh, we have a fixed mindset. The left is this way. The right is this way. And it's really difficult if you're entrenched in your way of thinking biologically, this is a reality as well as a spiritual reality, is that it's really hard to engage with ideas that are very different than yours because it causes your brain to grow, literally. 
It creates new neurological pathways for you to discover and hold on to something new. So literally, physiologically, y'all, you are not what you could be if only you would confront the darkness in your soul or confront the darkness in the world and try and map out this chaotic world by encountering it and going into an unexplored world and your body would literally create brand new genetic material if you would do that. And this is what's going on with Cain. God says there's more. My dendrites are exploding right now. Someone wrote on Facebook. That's funny. Good one. He's telling Cain, you can be more than you are already. You're in danger. Danger, danger. Watch out. You're heading down a bad pathway. But Cain doesn't do it. The origin of human violence now is a response to the unwillingness to grow to become more than we are already. And the reality here, y'all, is that you can either grow spiritually or you can decimate God's standards. And now we're going to get into some cultural analysis. Okay, hopefully this will help you analyze, give you some categories to analyze some of the, the, the chaotic things that are happening out in our culture today. And as believers in Jesus, we're very concerned about it. And I can imagine that many of you are having negative emotions as it relates to some of these things. Well... We can grow spiritually or decimate God's standards. I want to talk to you about the word decimate here real quick, because this is, I love this word. And I used it a lot to mean like waylaid or laid waste or just totally destroyed. But I looked it up recently and I was like, oh my gosh, this is even awesomer. Um, so decimation is a Latin word that means to execute a tenth. Okay, deca is Latin for ten. The Decapolis, the city of ten polises, Decapolis, ten cities in the Galilee. We talked some about that last two weeks ago. Decimation is Latin for execute a tenth. And this was, this little picture here is uh, a picture from the 1700s of the practice and originated with the Roman legions. And if the Roman legion, which was the largest body of troops, we talked about that a couple weeks ago too. If, if somebody was a deserter, uh, primarily, it was about desertion from the imperial command. Like Caesar said, Caesar said, go and do this. And they said, no, I don't want to do this. So they deserted. Well, the, the Romans would, they had to balance out the need for swift and, and final punishment. But also, they needed to preserve their fighting force. So they came up with this idea of randomly getting all the people that deserted or broke the law together and executing one out of every 10 people. So ultimately, this is about fratricide. Okay, that's the fancy word for brothers killing brothers. Okay, family, family killing each other, fratricide. So decimation for the Roman legions meant that they were marked for death by a ruling power for disobedience or desertion. It was primarily used in history when people deserted their commands. Okay? And this was a random, arbitrary act. Now, its cause was that you, according to Caesar, were guilty of something horrid, but there was no rhyme or reason to the selection of why you and not you. You're all guilty, and somebody was arbitrarily and randomly selected to be executed. 
Well, in, in decimation, who executed the tenth? Well, it was your brothers in arms. So this sentence was carried out by your brothers. The people that you were in war with, the command. I find this so interesting because this is exactly the story of Cain and Abel. And it's exactly what happens in culture. Okay. In culture. I don't know if you guys have ever said a word on social media or wrote something that you thought was kind of benign, but you used the wrong word. Um, and then the Twitter mob piles on you for saying the wrong thing. And all of a sudden you're like being decimated. You've been randomly selected by cancel culture to be destroyed by your fellow citizens and your brothers and sisters and the execution, the judgment is carried out by whatever this overarching authority body is. And now all of a sudden you're being attacked and assaulted and decimated culturally and publicly by your brothers and your sisters, the people you're supposed to be. We're all Americans. Why are we doing this to each other? Right? This is what Cain and Abel did. It wasn't a tenth. It was 50% of that family um, decimated inside a culture. So I want to talk a little bit lastly about this. I didn't ask anyone if they had any questions tonight. I guess I was proud of what I was saying. Questions in a minute. So I want to talk about a cultural analysis of decimation and violence. Let's put together these ideas now. The idea that violence is, the origin of human violence is the refusal to grow spiritually. God calls you to be more than you are, and instead of becoming more than you are, you look at the standard that God is holding up, and you try and destroy it. Okay? You decimate it. Right? Randomly selected for punishment carried out by your brother. Okay? One of the ways in our current culture where decimation and violence are occurring is in the area of gender confusion. There's a lot. Like, you can't even say, you know, I mean, I'd be surprised if Facebook, you know, take me down right now. I had, during the election, I was talking about, just said marriages between man and a woman, and they totally censored my live video and took it out um, on Facebook. But this idea of gender confusion is one of the places right now in our culture that if you don't toe the line of the council culture woke left belief about gender, then you're going to get decimated if you're a public figure. You know? And this has to do with the fact that God set a standard of human sexuality. And it's not an archaic, antiquated, Old Testament, puritanical thing. God's standard of sexuality is the thing that allows us to live in the beauty and the glory for which we've been made. And there's no other thing that can come close to delivering on the beauty and the life and the fulfillment of living in a godly, aligned, beautifully pure, open sexual relationship as God made it. Right? There's no other opportunity for that kind of growth, life, and freedom. And the consequences of not living that way, you just look at culture. There's all kinds of consequences for that. And as I was kind of doing some study on this, I found this interesting that 
the original meaning of the term gender was about gendered nouns in language. And there was no gender. There's no gender in the Bible. Okay? And the, the, the rallying cry of the gender identity stuff um, with all of the intersectionality and transgender and cisgender and all your genders that are confusing to many conservative believers that have never engaged with all of that. The original use of the word gender had nothing to do with humans. It had to do with words and had to do with gendered nouns that were male, female, or neutral as they referred to the self-evident biological sex of the speaker. So they wanted to have a way, um, whoever they were that created these languages, to have a way to clearly identify between the biological sex, male and woman, man and female, and then some words that are just, use them for either. So gender was not about individual sexual orientation. It was about words attached to the biological sex of the, of the noun. Now, I think this is a great example of a Cain-style thing. There's a refusal to accept the standard that God holds up in culture. And if you don't want to grow and become more than you are, which is often painful and requires that you sacrifice, that you give up things you think are valuable to discover that there's something a whole lot better, then you've got to murder the standard. You've got to decimate it. You got to have brother on brother, sister on sister. You got to destroy inside a culture. It's violence. You guys ever experienced verbal violence by misspeaking or mispronouncing someone? That actress that I didn't really like in The Mandalorian, whom I now support because she's been assaulted for this very thing, Janine Garofalo, I think is her name. This is what took her down misgendering people. Another area where there's decimation in violence because there's a refusal to grow spiritually and to become who God's made us to be is in the area of racism. And racism is, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, it's no longer about skin color, it's about power. And don't confuse people calling you a racist for saying that you don't like people of different color skin than you. This is, we are so far away from Martin Luther King Jr.'s racism, where God is one day, we're going to live in a culture that values the content of a character, not the color of his skin. That is not today's 2021 racism. This is about power. Racism means power. And if you're a racist, it means that you're in power. And who has the power? Well, white folk, men, heterosexual, cisgendered, native-born, able-bodied white men. Like... It feels so good to be at the top of this power structure as a white everything, right? So what happens is that these standards that God put around, there is no slave, nor free, nor Greek, nor Jew, nor male, nor female, right? There is no division in God. There's one race, right? The human race, okay? There's different ethnicities, but there's one race, Gender is related to language. There's two sexes, one race, and a bunch of ethnicities, biblically and biologically. That's just the truth. But our culture doesn't want to yield to that. They don't want to submit to the standard of God, and so they're decimating the standard. They're murdering with their words those that disagree with them. It's Cain and Abel. Okay? 
Last one here, we'll kind of wrap this up, is the silence is violence thing. And I think that this now, hopefully you've got a conceptual framework to understand what this is. This phrase, silence is, silence is violence, it perfectly encapsulates this theory of the origins of violence. Because what they're saying is, if you resist my demands for growth, then you're the violent actor in culture. Think about that. If you stay silent, and notice in that picture, if you can kind of see it, you know, it's a white woman with a mask holding up the sign. When I was in Washington, D.C. For the, for the Republican National Convention at the White House, um, I was with Eric Metaxas and a handful of other people, and Eric didn't know me. I knew him. We became buddies later, but I was kind of walking behind him. Um, but we walked out of the White House, and everybody was funneled up and around. Um, a couple of big pastors were there, Franklin Graham and a number of people. Um, they went out to the right, but there was a bunch of protesters all standing outside, screaming and cursing at us. And I had a nice suit on because I was at the White House. And we walk out and they go right. And then I'm like, I don't want to go right because that goes up towards BLM Plaza. And I know that's kind of funky. So they all went right. I went left to walk by myself down Constitution Avenue. And I was walking down Constitution Avenue at 1230 at night in Washington, right after the RNC, um, back to my hotel. And they were setting up on Constitution Avenue. They were setting up for the civil rights march that was happening the next day. And um, I walked down the street and there was a bunch of African-American people setting up booths and T-shirts and prepping for the parade. But that was a place they were buying a bunch of stuff. And they were all asking me questions and talking to me and asking me how the speech was. And I was talking to them and I was looking at their shirts and I was having discussions with them. But I got a little further down and I passed a bunch of young, female, white, Caucasian people and they started screaming at me. They started cursing me for being a Trump supporter, being at the White House and calling me all kinds of vile names. You know, I was a violent perpetrator of some kind worthy of reproach because I had a suit and I was near the White House and they were standing up for racism but I was having great conversation with all the African-Americans that I was talking to, but the white people were screaming obscenities at me. Why? Because race is not about color. It's about power. And this idea that, I'll say this, the left, the hard left, the BLM trained Marxist founders, the hard left that's pushing this in culture, they know how violence works. They understand the origins of violence, okay? And they are demanding, the, the Marxist hard left is demanding inside of culture that all of the conservative, evangelical, white, Protestant, and, you know, even if you're not white, even if you're not male, if you're conservative, or if you're a believer in Jesus, right? They're demanding that we grow spiritually. And they couch it in this language, there's Christian groups in Atlanta area that do whiteness intensive training for all the white people so that we can get out of our white fragility and our white pride. And they teach us how to get rid of whiteness. It's literally a group called Be the Bridge and they have a whiteness intensive and their videos train people how to get rid and heal whiteness, they say. 
this whole idea is they're couching it. And even this leftist social justice or social vengeance stuff that's infiltrated the church, this stuff is being couched in spiritual terms. Okay, They're asking us to grow. They're demanding that we grow. In fact, you must grow now. You must accept the reality of the narrative that we're giving you. Otherwise, your silence is violence. You've refused to grow spiritually, and now you're the violent actor in culture. Y'all see that? That's what silence and violence is articulating, and that's what it's meaning. And they understand how violence operates in culture because they're participants in the creation of violence in culture. Okay? So, I've been going about an hour and a half. I'm going to wrap it up, but we're not going to end on this downer. Okay? Y'all, we need to face the fact, like Abraham in Romans 4, Abraham faced the fact that his body was dead and that Sarah's womb was as good as dead. Abraham didn't have the seed and Sarah didn't have the womb. We didn't have what it took in ourselves and we don't have the opportunities and circumstance and culture. Okay? But Abraham faced the fact. He didn't demand or he didn't ignore it. He didn't say, I can't even think about that. I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord. I don't have any problems. I'm health and wellness in all areas of my life. I ignore the fact that I've got white blood cells that are spiking. I'm ignoring that. I'm just declaring faith. That's not faith in God. Facing the fact that you don't have what it takes and that your culture doesn't have what it takes. Your body's dead and the womb is dead. There's no seed. There's no womb. Facing the fact that your body and your womb is as good as dead, Abraham in faith believed. Against all hope, he in hope believed. Romans 4. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? So we're looking now at the origin of violence and culture. We're looking at the Cain and Abel story. We're looking at the manifestations of this in our culture. But y'all, I have faith and I have a belief that God is calling us and giving us an opportunity to rise above this and to be an incredible voice for healing and restoration because this generation is desperate. And the further into this violent spiral they go, the more desperately they need to be rescued with the power and the resurrection of Jesus. So these are the problems. What are the solutions? John, we're going to read this, chapter 15, 3 through 6. Jesus telling his disciples, Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That last part is not about hell, okay? It's about pruning. It's about husbandry, y'all. It's about gardening. It's about cutting off the things that don't belong in your life. Why? So that you can stay connected to the vine, so that you can grow. Jesus is saying, stay with me, y'all. If you want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, stay connected to Jesus. He's going to come in with his scissors and cut off the things that need to go. 
Most of the pruning happens with things that are already producing fruit, but they're not the fullness. Okay? Jesus is saying, in the midst of all of this chaos, he's telling his disciples, he's about to leave, he's about to die, he's about to abandon them, Philip is worried. Okay? And he's saying, don't worry. Stay connected. Abide. I want you to bear fruit. I want you to grow spiritually. It's possible. I'm about to die and be murdered by those that refuse to grow spiritually. The priesthood, the Romans, they're refusing to grow, and they're going to kill the standard that God put on the earth to reveal the glory of God. But don't be afraid, little children. Abide in me, and you will bear fruit. And I want to say to you all, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling anxiety, Jesus knows that. I know that. Your family knows that. Okay? It's not fake. There's lots to be anxious about. But we can, as believers in Jesus, stay connected to the vine. Stay connected to his heart. Go through the hard stuff of having your life pruned. Confront the darkness in your own soul. Become more than you are already by staying connected to Jesus. There is a, there is a hope that is growing up in so many believers' hearts right now. There's a prophetic voice of Jesus that is saying, don't despair. It comes from his scripture, but it's a now moment. Don't despair. Abide. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, John 15, 7, that's key. We abide in Jesus. And this is why I'm doing these studies, y'all. And I ramble on for 90 minutes while you sit and listen. Because we have to get the words of Jesus as we understand them into us. We abide in him and his words abide in us. When that happens, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. Why? Because in the abiding, in Jesus, with his words in us, we get remade in his image. We get retransformed. Our desires are gained mastery over. Why can we ask Jesus whatever we want when we abide? Because we have his heart. Sin is no longer crouching lustfully trying to master us. We have, through Jesus, connected and gained mastery over those desires. So we get to have the desires of our heart because it's his heart. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove or demonstrate to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to multiply. Back to the beginning in Genesis. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth to Cain. God wants there to be an intimate knowing that bears fruit in your life. He wants that. But you're not going to get that unless you abide, unless you confront the darkness in your own life, and if you confront the darkness and you order your world and Jesus comes and redeems and rescues you, maybe you've got a little bit of courage and capability to go and order some of the chaos in your local neighborhoods. Maybe you've got a little bit of courage and ability now to go and order some chaos in the world, to confront the darkness and watch God's glorious light and redemption burst into that area. But stay connected and he will show you the way to life. 
I want to pray. We'll finish and then I'll have questions. Let me pray for y'all. Living God, we bless you, Jesus. And I ask right now, Jesus, that that from this spew of words and ideas, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would root right now in Jesus' name the truth of the word of God, wherever it was spoken, that it would take root right now in the hearts and minds of those that have just listened. Father, that it would bear much fruit, God. Living God, I pray that you would teach us how to abide in you. Father, to become that which we're not, but we know that we are already because you're in us. Father, and it's this crazy The here but not yet kingdom of God that's coming, but it's already here. But there's more because you're an inexhaustible well of life and goodness. God, so I ask that you'd pour out your more over everyone that's listening right now. Pour out your more over me, Jesus, that we could experience your goodness, that we could yada you and give birth to life, eternal, sustaining, nourishing fruit in our culture, in our hearts, for our families and our friends. We ask you for this, Jesus, and I believe you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, my Zoom friends, from that, do y'all have any questions? I'd be happy to spend a few minutes if y'all are watching online. And that's kind of wraps up the Bible teaching portion of this, but there's a lot of great questions that come of this. Oh, happy birthday, Pam. That is a wonderful end to your birthday. Thank you for sharing some of your special day with us. Your virtual family that only knows your first name. Is there any questions over on the Zoom side of things? If you have a question, you can unmute and ask it or raise your hand. I have a question. Yes. Um, I have had a friend tell me recently that uh, in the last, last year that God is in Genesis, and I have been rereading, I was rereading over all of the first several chapters in Genesis today in more than one um, version or translation, but told me that God made two sets of humans, one that he blew his breath in and one that he didn't. And uh, one that he just spoke into existence and then one that he formed with his own hands and blew his breath in. And I, I don't see it. So I'm just asking if anyone's ever heard of this before. Yes, that's yes, a good that's question. A good... And, I, and I understand what's being asked. Um, there are in Genesis two different moments where God talks about creation and creation of humans. It's in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And so some people interpret that as separate events, um, and they come up with these sorts of theories, okay, different kinds of humans and things like that. Uh, I think that there is a literary way of understanding that from a Hebrew perspective of how they wrote and the way that they told stories. Um, Primarily, they're not writing in a Western framework where we think linear and chronology, So we think, well, it happened first, chronologically, you can't be born again, right? So if they're telling the story again, then that's got to mean that it's another set of humans. That's a Western way of interpreting that. I don't believe that that interpretation carries with it the weight of biblical authority, because biblical authority is based in both 
the the authority of the word that has been recorded throughout the years, the author's intent and the cultural understanding with which they wrote it, and then an orthodoxy um, throughout history of the way that people have interpreted stuff. Um, so I am familiar with those ideas. I don't believe that there was a second set of humans that were made. It's another telling of that story that gives us a different piece of information from another perspective. Does that make sense? Yes, yes thank, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And the and Genesis, Genesis narrative, narrative is, is an important, important one. one. Um, um, and I may, I may do that next, that next year, year. Uh, to talk to you all about um, Genesis because the, the biblical authority and understanding the biblical authority of what Genesis, the story that Genesis is actually telling um, is important. We can solve what I think a lot of conflict in culture around um, uh, religion and science if we understand some of that Genesis stuff. Another question. Raise your hand. Anyone? All right, I'll take the I'll take the Facebook question. Where did Cain get a wife? That's a fun one. Um, well, here's a Bible answer for you. Um, in Genesis chapter six, the scriptures talk uh, about goes back. That's that's like the Nephilim and the the demons and all that crazy stuff in Genesis chapter chapter six. Um, but in that in that narrative, I don't have it in front of me. I could look it up, but go read it. You can find that it talks about Abraham. Um, not Abraham, but it talks about Adam and Eve during this period and that they gave birth to sons and daughters. It's one little phrase in there about Adam giving birth to sons and daughters. Well, we know that it was Cain and Abel and then Seth came after. But later in Genesis 6, it talks about sons and daughters. So there is a rabbinic tradition uh, in the Mishnah that talks about a handful of daughters that Adam and Eve gave birth to that are not mentioned in the Cain and Abel account. So Adam and Eve probably, according to Genesis, had daughters, and then Cain would have married his sister. So that is an answer. I see another. Um... Alan, what you got, man? Regarding what you just talked about, I have heard uh, uh, some <laughs> say that it's possible that Eve could have had daughters before Cain and Abel because she specifically mentioned a man-child. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, another that's another possibility, possibility as well. As well. Um, um, it does, it seem, does seem pretty, pretty likely like that, that Adam and Eve did have, did have um, daughters. Um, as well. Um, I found your thread, Karen, Vicky, and Patricia. Um, so I'm going to read it. I was taught that the reason God did not accept Cain's offering was because God had cursed the land and Cain's offering came from a cursed land. Is there no truth to this at all? Well, um, by virtue of my hesitancy to say there's no truth in anything um, except replacement theology. Um, I don't know if there's no truth in that at all, um, but the 
It is important to know that in the scriptures, the land was cursed in Adam and Eve, but humans were not cursed. And um, if, let's follow this then, if, if it's true from whoever made up this idea that God would never accept an offering that comes from the earth, then it would follow throughout the rest of scripture that any offerings that come from the earth would be unacceptable to God. Right? If that's the reason that he didn't take Cain's offering, then either it needs to be consistent throughout Scripture, or God needs to have a different category for Cain than he did for everybody else, which would mean God would have to change. Uh, the Scriptures are pretty clear that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so my default position here with this analysis would be, you know what? All of the sacrificial systems that God sets up are grain offerings and wheat offerings and oil and grapes and vines. And yes, there's livestock, but there's tons of produce and grain and things that are given back to God as first fruits. And he blesses those and he sanctifies those. And in, in Shavuot, you take the first fruits of the grain and you wave it before the Lord and you offer it to God. You know, this is a way of just saying, Lord, accept this as an offering. And God does. And he pours out his Holy Spirit, not because they waved some grain, but because of Jesus. Um, so I guess as I think about it, I, I would say that I don't think that there's any truth in the fact that the reason Cain's offering was not accepted is that the earth was cursed. Now, I suppose you could argue that the redemption of the curse, maybe the land gets redeemed from the curse in Jesus, but... Um, you know, that would mean that every sacrifice that was offered from the land prior to Jesus was also not acceptable, and clearly that's not the case. So I think that it has something to do more with what I'm talking about and less to do with the reason that the offering wasn't taken. And I think this is part of it. If you've ever had an argument with a spouse or a good friend and you're trying to tell them the things that they were supposed to be arguing with you and they're like, well, that's not my point at all. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. You're like, no, it means this. It means this. They're telling a different story. And I think the point of this story is telling a very different story. It's telling the story of spiritual growth, reconnection, becoming more. The story that I spent my time telling and not the, why is your sacrifice no good? Any other questions? I'm going to get out of this comment thread. Um, anything from YouTube? I abandon my YouTube chatters so often. Um, so I'm going to look in YouTube. I don't see any comments there. Anything else? Oh, genetic, pu genetic pool and mutations. I'm not going to touch that one. Um, anything else, y'all? Any other questions in Zoom? I'm curious about something. Yeah, go for it. Um, it's not quite it's important, important to me, but the, the idea of the firstborn and the secondborn, uh, you know, firstborn having all the rights. And there were so many times when God flip-flopped that throughout Genesis. I mean, was that God's idea? Or is that just a man tradition that the firstborn gets the double portion and so on and so forth? Yeah. Good question. Hopefully you all can hear that. Um, about the the role of the firstborn kind of flip-flopping. Um, I think that 
again, there, there's so many different levels to analyze that question. And part of that is an ancient culture uh, of the way that they organized um, societies. And I think that there's tremendous value in understanding some of that. One answer is that I do think that being the firstborn, giving status in some capacity to something that you are by virtue of your birth that you didn't do anything to work for is an important part of understanding God. Okay? That I was born into this and I didn't do anything for it. And I have a special status in the world and I have an inheritance and a portion and a birthright by virtue of the fact that I was born first. So this is one of the ways that we begin to understand what it means to be chosen by God for his purposes, not by virtue of anything that we've done, but because of who we are. Okay, And looking at that level of analysis throughout the scriptures, it's very interesting that it's not the only thing that God looks at. Okay, Because the secondborns are the ones that get the inheritance so much of the time. Not because God is like John Kerry and flip-flopping back and forth on the Iran nuclear deal. You know, I mean, he's not a flip-flopper. Um, but he's saying, my desire is for you to understand that you have been given something by virtue of your birth that is valuable beyond compare. And it's your call to steward that and to handle it and to grow into it. And the story of the scripture is that the firstborn so frequently advocate their responsibility and lose. They sell their birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Okay, and they get their inheritance stolen. And then God honors the people that pursue him in faith, that didn't have the birthright, but they had the faith. Now, this is the Jew-Gentile issue. The birthright came to the Jews, but the faith was given to the Gentiles, right? And this is the mystery of Romans 11. This is salvation by faith, not from birthright, that the secondborn comes into the house of Yeshua HaMashiach first. But the firstborn will come, okay? So there's a, there's a really deep weaving throughout the whole text of the scriptures about the firstborn, the secondborn, the Jews and the Gentiles, those that held the promise and those that grabbed the promise by faith. Not to say that the firstborn sons don't enter the promise through the door of faith. Okay, that's the only way to get to the fathers through the door of faith, if you can hear what I'm saying there. But I think that firstborn thing has something to do with, with that. Um, and there's also just a plain cultural, this was the way they did it back in those days. But I tend to not just say, oh, that's the only way. Like, there's another level of analysis there. Sure. Um, iPhone Essa Burns. Who's iPhone Anessa? I like that. You have your hand raised. Question? Yes. Uh, hi. Thank you for the study. It's really great. But, um, uh, what, uh, what, maybe no question, but I will think that, uh, with, uh, Cain, no, his, you know, uh, 
his offer, I mean, his, uh, no, what he brought to the Lord, his fruits of the, of the earth that he brought to the Lord, and God did not honor that. I will think it's because also God knows our heart. He knew, you know, Cain's heart and he knew Abel's heart. And a lot of times that's this, this, it's the same thing with us, that he knows where our heart is. And a lot of times he won't accept what, you know, our sacrifice, he won't accept our offerings because, you know, it's, our heart is not right with him. And, and and also I was I was also thinking that because Adam and Eve has sinned and the you know the land was cursed that you know there has been probably there was something that maybe you know canceled to his parents the sin that they had committed that maybe Dion Plumsing had to live his life and did they have the example of his parents to follow? I don't know, that's just something that came to my mind. And I think with a lot of the things that are happening with this generation, there is a lot of rebellion and there's a lot of influence from the world, from you know the evil one, and a lot of people trying to pull them to, you know, to uh, disobey God. So that's what we also see, you know, a lot of seeing a lot of evil going on right now. That because, you know, I think it's uh, our people's heart is not where it's supposed to be. I mean, God asks us to sacrifice. Whenever he calls to him, and, and you know, maybe it's not sacrificing in the sense that we think uh, it is uh, something hard for us to do that God wants to punish us, you know, by sometimes we are abstaining to do a lot of things that we supposed, you know, that we want to do, but it's not good for us. Christ, and, you know, we want to be with him. And he has promised, you know, uh, to give us a crown, to be, you know, we, he promised us to, to uh, uh, that, that, you know, you know we, we will end up with him. But that's why we look for it. That's why we focus our eyes on him. And whenever we don't do that, that's, that's being disobedient. I think that's what Satan did. He didn't want to obey God. He wanted to be his own king. And a lot of times we don't want to obey God because we don't want anybody to reign over us. And I don't know if it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that, whoa, echo, echo. I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, oh, I have, I tried to show the Zoom meeting, but I guess I'm in the Zoom meeting. So now I'm talking in the Zoom meeting. I'm going to go back. Sorry. Um, so I do think that there's an element to the, the question about just how real, um, the statement you made about God knows our hearts. Um, because I do think it's much less about the action, and it's much more about the heart. And that's throughout the entire scriptures. It's about mm -hmm. the heart of who God says that we are and what he's understanding about us. Constantly, the scriptures say, Jesus, discerning their thoughts or understanding their hearts, replied this way, you know. Um, and the, the, the prophets uh, cry out. They say, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you know, and I don't care about your sacrifices anymore. Give me a circumcised heart. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that's a, a huge component to um, why the offering was accepted and why it wasn't because the father then goes after uh, Cain's heart, trying to draw him out and become more than he is and that whole, that whole thing. So I definitely think it's about the heart. For sure. Good question. All right. Got um, Mary. One more question from Mary. Yes. Thank you, Adam. Um, I heard, you, you know, this, this is, is a curious question. Um, I heard, you know, someone said that uh, actually Cain is um, Eve, Eve got from uh, uh, the snake. So, um, so the snake actually uh, tempted Eve. So, uh, so actually, Cain is from the snake. So, uh, so the source is not good. So I don't know. I'm just curious about this question yeah. because I heard uh, the Bible we are reading right now actually was edited. So, um, um, yeah. So the question is that you know, Cain. The statement wondering is that Cain was actually seed from the serpent. Um, yeah. 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 So, yeah, so there's there's no biblical authority or evidence that supports that idea. Um, it's it's wild conjecture uh, because the the scripture is very clear that the serpent um, tempted Eve, who was with her husband, and they ate of the fruit. Um, and the fruit has a particular meaning. Uh, the writers of Hebrew don't include any kind of undertones or or things about Eve and the serpent. Um, and the scriptures explicitly connect the birth of Cain to Adam and Eve knowing one another in an intimate way. So that's one of the things that a lot of folks will do that are trying to pull people out from biblical authority is they'll challenge the, the, the historical reliability of the scriptures by saying, well, the one you have right now, that's not really the good one. You know, things were added to that or things were repressed and kept out. Um, and there is a historical look at that um, question, but not from the perspective that, um, that God's purposes and truths have been repressed. Um, and this comes from this idea that there's secret knowledge that has been repressed by the powers that codified the Bible. And if you'll just accept the secret knowledge that we have over here, if you become part of this little group of members that deny the body and how bad and evil the body is and how good and powerful the spirit is, that is an ancient um, cult and an ancient heresy broadly known as Gnosticism. And the Gnostic Gospels were something that was in the first century and second century of the scriptures, uh, A.D. New Testament. They battled the Gnostic uh, heresies fiercely. And the they is the eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the first generation of people that heard stories from the eyewitnesses. So... What you're talking about there is someone sharing Gnostic gospel ideas um, that have no root in the scriptures that I'm not saying your friends in Gnostic or whatever, but that's that's part of the origins of this idea that the serpent impregnated Eve and she gave birth to Cain and that her seed was corrupted. The Gnostics believe that the body and the flesh is bad and evil and that the spirit is the highest and the best. So... 
that's part of that idea. And I would, I certainly don't believe that and don't believe that the Bible teaches that. Um, okay. As truth. Thank you. But uh, I heard that, you know, the Bible uh, we are reading uh, is uh, edited. That's like several, I think this is like the, the source is uh, it's it's reliable, uh, and I also heard that there are about like over seven hundred were version Bibles, like in Vatican, like under the tunnel. So uh, yeah, so I don't know because you know the Bible, uh, totally right now it's sixty six books. So some also said that you know this is kind of like a satanic uh, number, whatever you well yeah, but. Uh, yeah, this is just, this is just the some of the theories. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I I mean I can appreciate that, and thanks for asking that question. Um, the the authority of the scriptures has long been under attack, uh, and there is uh, we can mount using reason, history, experience, testimony throughout history. We can mount a very very solid. Uh, apology or defense for the historicity and the accuracy of the scriptures. Um, one of those things is in the 1940s, there was a thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found. And these were in the caves in Qumran that had been lost forever since they were written by a group called the Essenes, who were people that fled Jerusalem because they were worried the Romans were going to come and kill them all. And they just copied Torah scrolls about 15 miles um, to the southeast of Jerusalem, down by the Dead Sea. And they wrote scrolls of Isaiah, and they put them in these clay jars, and I think it was in the 40s or 30s, they were found by a shepherd, and they took out those scrolls that had been lost for 1,500 years and matched them up with the codexes and all of the other sources for Isaiah, and over thousands of words there was like a 99.99% accuracy in these 1,500-year-old scrolls with the revelation that we had gotten or the scriptures that we had gotten in the book of Isaiah through the different codexes and the Latin Vulgate and, and all of the different scriptures that grew up in the Greek and the Hebrew and the Latin. That's just one example for the, in it, the biblical authority and accuracy of the scriptures. Um, also, from a geographic and geological perspective, uh, you know, archaeological perspective, rather, you know, there's never been a book that has been more accurate as it relates to the archaeological places and locations than the Bible. Um, and a tiny fraction of the biblical lands have ever been excavated, and they continue one place after the next to find records of names and people and cities and history the way it was recorded. That in itself doesn't mean that there couldn't be some theological thing that got inserted in a history document that was wrong. Um, but the way that the people that copied, preserved, transmitted those scrolls, they just have a totally different way and value system than us. That was life and death, the most precious thing. And histor historically, it's been proven time and time again to be incredibly accurate from the early days of scripture. So um, 
it's an interesting question and, and you know, love to mount a, a discussion on the historicity and the, the accuracy of the scriptures and answer some serious challenges. There's, there's real challenges, but um, they can all be answered, not just with, well, the Bible says that I believe it, um, which may be good for salvation, but it's not good for cultural apologetics. Um, and salvation is more important. <laughs> but... Amen. Well, I, I'm not like uh, challenging the, the authority of the, the Bible. It's, I hope it's uh, totally true. You know, the enemy didn't change something, you know, because I've been reading for so many years, right? I don't want like suddenly I have to reread, you know, that, that you know, some of the words is not from God or whatever, you know, because this is these days there's uh, so many uncertainties, you know. So yeah. people talking about this, I hope everything is true because I've been loving reading for so many years, right? So yeah, amen. Yeah, and and I'm not I'm not suggesting that you're challenging this, and even those that do challenge it, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. Um, but we do, but but we need to be aware in culture that there's a handful of ways that that people have challenged the authority of the scripture to come in and try and undermine the reliability of that. And if you can undermine the reliability of the text, you can undermine the authenticity or the authenticity of the of the ones who offered it and the God whom it reveals. And if you undermine the God whom it reveals, you can undermine yourself and personal identity. And it's just this slide out of confidence and connection to God into you know, a pretty unmoored historical and social experience. Um, so I'm pretty passionate about the the authority of the scripture, uh, and I'm not naive to its challenges um, historically, but it's a pretty reliable document. So God bless you for reading it for so long and seeking truth. Well, on the contrary, actually, you know, uh, it makes me like close to God because I thought, you know, well, if the, this is a Bible, you know, like anyway, uh, read, uh, you know, written or uh, translate by people. I mean, the only reliable person is God himself, right? So right now when I'm reading the Bible, I've been like more and more careful than before. Like, I mean, take a long time and think about and ask God, you know, is this from your words, you know? So I think he's the only one that. It's reliable. He's the only one that I can always, you know, go to him and ask him. So this actually makes me close to him, you know. So I don't take like everything granted and think, okay, the Bible said this. So I, um, yeah, so, you know, the book said this, then I believe it, you know. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that, I love that, I love Mary. that Mary. That's, That's the right way to pursue the Lord, you know. What does it say in the book? And then you take your thoughts and you take your understanding to Jesus, you know. I've heard it said that the Bible without the Holy Spirit is religion. You know? Amen. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. That's not the Trinity, right? So we Amen. need the Spirit of God to give us revelation to understand the written Word of God so that we can know the incarnate Word of God. When all that stuff works in concert with one another, you know, that's the joy and the never-ending adventure of the life of a believer. Reading the Word asking the spirit to reveal the word to encounter more of the incarnate one. That's the stuff. So Amen. thank you so much. Okay. One more. We've, we've gone a little over time and I have to pack for a 
international. I've been cleared by the government to travel internationally. My COVID test. So I got to go pack. Any one last question? Anyone else? All right. Well, thank you all so much. Um, bless you all. We will, uh, I'll, I think I'll try and do something again on Monday. I will be back uh, by then. Um, and maybe I'll just tell you some stories of what happens in Guatemala. Um, or I'll create some other thing. So God bless you all. Peter, uh, I know Peter. You got a question, Peter? Make it quick. Love to hear from you, though, if you raise your hand on purpose. I did, yeah. Um, trust me, you don't want to see me right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the question I had was essentially, um, given what we're talking about with uh, violence and culture, would the Good Samaritan Luke be a good paradigm with which to uh, start stepping out individually, at least in, in communities, to uh, start addressing what we're seeing in our culture? So would, would the Good Samaritan be a paradigm for us to start stepping out? Um, that's an interesting question, Peter. Um, to think through... Oh, man. See, if I answer that the way that I'm starting to think about it, we'll be here for 20 more minutes. Um, and I don't want to do that. But uh, Sorry, my bad. No, it's not bad at all. I, I, I do think that that, that, that story um, forces us into... Uh, understanding both the neighbor and then the um, the religious pride that keeps us from extending the hand. I wonder how that would... I'm going to think about that. I don't have an immediate answer, um, but I like the question. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you all. God bless you all. Thank you for joining uh, another study. Thank you all, all my friends on Zoom. Um, Thank you, if you want to get connected with me uh, via text, I have a service. Uh, you can go to my website, adamshinler.com. Click on this particular video. I'll put it up here. I'll put the notes on the website right after this. In about 10 minutes, they'll be up. Um, and you can, if you want to get connected via text to get on the Zoom meeting or other various things, um, you can text me at the number on my website. So. All right. Thank you all. Have a wonderful night and we'll see you again. Bye. Thank you.